Let us pray. Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Through the intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. And we thank him in Jesus' name. name. Amen. Well, I thought of today, and it's great to see your faces. You all are an encouragement to me, as I wish to be to you. And I sense our fellowship just standing here and looking out upon you all. So I appreciate this opportunity and invitation to speak today. It is October 31, Reformation Sunday, the 504th anniversary of Luther nailing the 95 Thesis on the church door at Wittenberg. And just to mix it up, I am wearing socks today that were purchased in Wittenberg. You can see the yellow. Here I stand, I can do no other. In German, I don't ask me to repeat the German. That would have required a lot of practice to get beforehand. But, uh, oh, you didn't get to see it. I was not there. My daughter and her family were there. They bought me those socks at the 500th anniversary four years ago. They were touring Germany and Switzerland and went to a lot of the Reformation places. So what I want to do today is focus on... Romans 11, 28-36. It is about God calling us to himself. And I've called it the end of the matter. We just read about the end of the matter in another scripture. and Some of our opening scriptures today from Ecclesiastes. Well, the end of that matter was the end of the law. Or what the author of Ecclesiastes had to say about the law of God that we shall all stand in judgment. To fear God and keep his commandments is the whole duty of man, and every work shall come into judgment. Well, that's the end of the matter in Ecclesiastes. Uh, It doesn't really sound like good news yet, but that's how we introduce this. Um, But thinking of the Reformation, just briefly, I want to talk about our message today. I want to keep the focus of the five alones of the Reformation. I want us to keep those in mind so that we don't lose track, because that's what it's all about. All of salvation based on God's grace alone, extended to us in the person and work of Christ alone, is imputed righteousness, received and assured by faith alone, all to the glory of God alone, and all confirmed as truth by Scripture alone. Those are the five alones from the Reformation. (coughs) Grace, Christ, faith, the glory of God, and Scripture. Without the Scriptures, we know nothing about any of this. Anything else we read of the Gospel and other authors is because they have first 
studied and read the scriptures and come to an understanding of the gospel. And this is all in contrast for any plus merits type of teaching where faith plus works and through our own merits and the merits of Christ and all the pluses that we that somehow need to be added that we contribute and that's what we're doing away with and the whole message of the Reformation which really came from the New Testament the gospel that Paul and we're going to focus on the book of Romans uh, the verses 28 to 36 here are actually the last verses of Paul's gospel presentation in Romans, which is his longest in all his epistles. And what I want to introduce here before we get into that is three questions to ask when studying the Bible, because I want us to ask these questions as we study this passage of the Bible today. First question is, what's my matter? We have already talked about the end of the matter, that conclusion. So what is the matter? That's the first thing. Anytime we're studying the Bible, what is the subject matter, the overarching concern of the biblical author that we are thinking about? The theme, the real point, the subject. In context. And I, what comes to my mind there is the death and resurrection theme of Christ, all four Gospels, about the last third of each of those, is focused on both teachings of Christ and acts of Christ on his way to the cross in that final descent from Galilee into Jerusalem to ultimately be crucified at the hands of sinners and raise again from the dead, which she talked about a lot, that that was going to happen in advance. It's just that it seemed like happiness be to those that were listening. They just didn't really grasp what he was saying there until it actually occurred. But if we look at the theme of resurrection itself, just in three instances, and all these occur in this final journey of Christ to the cross. He told a parable of rich man and Lazarus. I'm not even going to go into the details of the parable today, but the name he chose for that parable, Lazarus, to describe the beggar that died and went to Abraham's side. I tend to believe that there's some connections there with other resurrection passages. Because how does that story conclude? The concluding line that Christ was trying to teach there. Even if one should rise from the dead, they will not believe. And that's what that story was told to cause us to think about. Well, then there's another Lazarus. And that's in the Gospel of John, not in Luke. I tend to think there's some reason why both of those are related, because they both have something to do with the resurrection, because we know what happened to the Lazarus and John. He was actually, literally raised from the dead by Christ, with the view of the scribes and Pharisees who were already plotting to kill him, seeing before their very eyes this resurrection. 
again. Even if one should rise from the dead, they will not believe. They immediately went back and plotted all the more earnestly to kill him after they left that scene. And what does that tell us? Men, his heart is hard. He cannot believe apart from a special work of the Holy Spirit giving a new heart, a changed mind, which is what the meaning of repentance, a change in thinking about where we no longer are enslaved hopelessly by the sin that we are inherit. So then, of course, the third resurrection is Christ's own resurrection. So those three I want to think about. Christ himself, raised from the dead, fulfilled all those prophecies, and was seen at one point by more than 500 Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to know what they saw, go ask them. Most of them are still living at that time. But we don't need to do that because we have the testimony. Blessed is he who has not seen and yet believed. But based on the testimony of those who did see him and that they have given, we believe. And that's the point here is how do we get faith and that's what we're going to study today. So then we want to think about uh, the words, the key words in any passage we're studying that need to jump out at us and really give us the picture of what's taught there. Um, is there a key word used prominently if it's used repeatedly throughout a section of scripture, a certain word? And uh, then it's critical to the overall theme. And then the third question is, what's my line? The final and most important question here that builds on the other two, the concluding summary of all that has been said in a particular section or passage of Scripture. What is the line? Now, some of you might think of the old TV show, What's My Line? Because I used to love that show when I was a kid watching it. There was a show where you had a, some panelists, judges, and there was one contestant on each, on each uh, episode. And the job of the panelists was to determine the profession, the line of work of the person who was the contestant. And the savvy that they had, and how they were so easily, just by asking yes and no questions only, nothing else. That's all they were the person will walk in, they know really nothing about the person other than to look at their face and maybe they gave whether they're married or not. But for the most part, knew nothing beforehand and very and the reward was five dollars for per no question that they they took away. Very rarely did anyone get more than ten or fifteen dollars. By two or three Two, usually it was two, usually two no questions, and the next yes question, they would have identified that person's profession. And I just found that amazing how they could size up a person so easily and readily. And, but that's what we were looking for when we studied the Bible. It's not the line of work, it's the line that summarizes the truth that is being presented us. So, Moving on, then, um, 
in this case, the gospel truth, because that's what Paul is presenting in Romans, is his gospel. So, the gospel of salvation, as taught by Paul, in Romans, he's trying to be very clear, and he's very systematic, very thorough, to present the gospel that he teaches in such a way as to counteract any false rumors about what he was teaching, which constantly were being circulated. He had never been to Rome yet. It was probably written that he earnestly wanted to see the churches in Rome. There was multiple communities of believers there, not one. But he introduces then his theme, you know, in Romans 1.17 that we uh, looked at earlier. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And of course, that's his word. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And that live means eternal life. And that righteousness is the justification of God. It's the same word in both the Greek and the Latin and many Latin languages. There are two separate words, righteousness and justification. Just and right are just one word. And Paul's gospel presentation and following is those verses continues clearly down to chapter eleven, which is what we're going to consider today. All those, all that section is a systematic presentation of the gospel, and that presentation has three tiers. We might think of them as stories of a building, the household of faith. It's one way to picture it. Which ascend to the conclusion that we're going to consider. That maybe the people of God are called a household of faith, the household of God, and in building that gospel household, we need to consider these and most scholars that agree with this that there's three sections that he builds one upon another in this gospel presentation Romans. So we want to do three words that summarize each matter of these three sections so that we can simplify. The first matter is condemnation. The second matter is justification. And the third matter is calling. Condemnation, justification, and calling. So let's look at the tier one matter. Condemnation. And we read in our opening liturgy today uh, Ecclesiastes, the end of the matter fear God and keep his commandments this is the whole duty of man for God will bring every work into judgment and that is a background text to what Paul is saying here in Romans for sure the connection and I think in our presentation in the bulletin is followed by Romans 3 which does nothing to repeat this very very same thing and with the caveat that no one is going to stand in this judgment. In Mark 10, 17 to 20, he was setting out in his journey, Christ. A man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? Remember that one. That's important to you. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Let's keep that in our thinking. Jesus said, no one is good except God. Alone. God alone is good. And then he goes on to repeat many of the Ten Commandments. 
the river says, oh, I kept all those from my youth up. And then Christ goes on to expose his covetousness by what follows. And the conclusion there is, no, you're not keeping them all. Um, and that was the way that was exposed in that instance. So, um, Romans 3, 9-12, none is righteous, no, not one. This is Paul's conclusion of this verse, second. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one, which is exactly what Christ was saying. No one is good but God. And uh, that's the line there. That's the concluding line. I'm going to repeat our opening scripture up front here. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, and through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So there it is. There's condemnation for all. That's the first tier of gospel truth that Paul presents. And why is that necessary as the foundational truth? Because there's no gospel to present without the background that we're all in sin. We're all condemned. And based on our own merits, our own life, our own character, our own works, there's nothing there that's going to recommend us to God in the judgment. So that's the tier one matter. The universal sinfulness of mankind and the knowledge of that extreme sinfulness and unworthiness is the very truth that paves the way for the good news of the gospel. We have have nothing to contribute. Moving on to the tier two, the second level story of this building, justification. And our message today is to focus on calling. Justification is the heart of the gospel and it's what Paul uh, is talking about all the way from Romans 3.21 to 8.27. And he, he really is focused on it too all the way through the end of chapter 8, but not exclusively. And you'll see that. The change in subject for Paul is very abrupt when he moves from condemnation to justification in Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That but now is an abrupt change, but we're leaving condemnation and going to talk about justification, is what it is there. And just to summarize what he concluded there again, we are justified by his grace as a gift. Grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So we have right there, grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone. The first three of those five only is from the Reformation right there. And that's the heart of the gospel. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And going on through this second section of Romans, Paul concludes that we have peace with God, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's peace is one of God's great gifts. There's um, no condemnation, which are those 
now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So he's again contrasting the gospel and the, st- the status we're in now that we're justified by Christ in his grace through faith. But once he's finished with that glorious presentation of how we are justified and saved apart from ourselves, no merit of our own, apart from works, then he starts to gradually move into this next matter of calling. But the verses in Romans, and how do I know this? Because the use of the words themselves, we talked about that. We need to look at words, whether they're repeated a lot or not. Um, and the scripture that we had in the uh, bulletin I'm going to repeat now, Romans 8, 28, 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I know you've heard that scripture quoted hundreds of times. How often have we thought of that word called being the key word, though, in that passage? And that's the official calling that we read about from the confession. God's call. It's important that we understand that in the gospel, our justification and our calling go together. They happen simultaneously. Without calling, we can't believe because we're born in sin and have no ability to grasp hold in faith of what Christ has done. So this is the crowning and concluding argument of Paul's gospel, starting with these verses that we just looked at here. Um, And then he goes on to say in the next two verses, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And even that glorification is like paired with these other two as if they're all a certainty. No one's getting one without all of them in God's purpose. Actually, glorification really starts now in Daryl's message uh, last week. Our suffering with Christ is sharing His glory because we're conformed to His sufferings that we will be later glorified with Him in the resurrection like He has been resurrected. So that's a beginning of glorification in this life. But uh, so this calling in Romans, we're going to see, is attributed to the glory of God alone. That's that only to the glory of God from the Reformation. It's not by works in every same sense that justification is not by works, and we're going to see Paul state that multiple times here. Calling is the raising of a soul dead in trespasses and sin to life like that valley of dry bones in Ezekiel that came to life and flesh came on them and they breath, life was breathed into them and they stood as a great army. That 
the vision is symbolic, of course, of final resurrection that will come to all who are God's people. It is a symbol of the resurrection to a new heart in each person, resurrected from death to life. But none can believe, just like all those who disbelieved Christ in those three instances that were mentioned there, none can believe without this calling. Those who he called, he also justified. But there's not going to be a justification if there's not a calling. Because that's the Holy Spirit working faith in us, bringing us to himself. So our individual justification, being declared just and right before God, only in Christ, his merits, his personal work. And I'm not talking about all aspects of justification. I'm talking about when we individually are first named as one of the saved. The joy in heaven when we are given repentance, for instance. Maybe you had angels taking care of you all your life before that, longing to see whether you were going to be one of those or not, uh, but not knowing for sure. And then that day comes when Christ shouts your name as one of the justified, at that same moment that faith has worked within you by the Holy Spirit, and that justification is both declared in heaven at that point and in your conscience within you, it's declared as you are assured of the fact of your redemption at that time. And that name is unsealed in the Book of Life. I'd like to picture it that way. If you look at the big scroll of the Book of Life before the foundation of the world, all the names are in it. At that time, that seal comes off of one of the names, and your name is shown for the first time. That's how I like to picture it. Um, that's justification individually when it is applied to justification of Christ accomplished at the cross is applied to each of us individually. And that has been true of every saint from the beginning of time to the end. Has this calling and justification in God's appointed time. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of him, his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. That's great. And Paul said that right before his death. He wrote that in his final epistle to Timothy and said, This grace was given to me before all ages. I, I just find that very exalted praise. So, to conclude here, I just want to read these references to calling and the rest of Romans and just to show how often this concept is used. That great ascent of praise, Romans 8, 31 to 39, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, that concludes Paul's focus on justification. It is God who justifies, who is he to condemn, is in there. And it comes right after this introduction of calling, and it 
as far as I'm concerned, it is both the conclusion to justification and the introduction of calling in that great hymn of praise, that great ascent at the end of Romans 8. Here's the other references now, Romans 9, 10 to 12, and I'm just going to pick out the section of these verses that applies, talking about the children that Rebecca conceived by Isaac. Though they were not yet born and had done neither good or bad, meaning no works. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the elder will serve the younger. So calling by grace alone is the thing again. Romans 9, 23 to 25. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. That prepared beforehand for glory is exactly what Paul said in Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the his son. It's the same connection there. He's prepared them beforehand for glory. This is all to God's glory alone. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So there's a lot of calling going on here. Paul refers to the remnant of 7,000 from the northern tribes did not bow the knee to Baal. In this place in Romans, he refers to those to establish the truth that there was always a remnant of God's chosen, a true remnant, true believers in, in the seed of Abraham at every point in the history of Israel before Christ, at the time of Christ, and after Christ, he goes on to say, the remnant was going to continue to the end of time. There would always be in every generation of remnant. I believe that's you know what the scripture is teaching. And um, some of those Roman churches, I think, were they were Jewish believers at one time. But when the ten tribes were dispersed and scattered into the nations, some of those had been many generations in that Roman Republic already those Jews who were part of God's remnant to them received Christ once the gospel went out and was preached. So, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10 through 13, 13. that's our calling on his name after he has called us. That's when we believe and grasp Christ in faith. And here is the final conclusion of the matter of the verses that we want to look at. And it's simple. It doesn't take much time to discern what he's saying here. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Talking about Israel, literal Israel, descendants of Abraham. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, 
for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's the line. That's his. That's Paul's concluding line of his gospel. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. All the gifts means everything about salvation: justification, adoption, sanctification, uh, peace with God, pleasures forevermore at God's right hand, a new resurrection body, and a new earth. Everything about the kingdom. All the gifts of God are given to those who are called, and that call is irrevocable. This is, and this is the final tower, glorious tower, the, that we're talking about, the household of God, and this being the three tiers, that final tier reaches to the glory of God the most, I would say, as far as glorification is concerned in the sense of all glory going to God and nothing to man. So the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable and entry into that house is Christ. He's the chief cornerstone. And once you go through that door, Christ, that irrevocable means there's no exit. This is not a revolving door into this household of faith. It's a door you enter once and stay in the kingdom of God forever. His kingdom will have no end. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too now they have been disobedient in order that the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. And I believe it was now that God began to take his elect from the Jews of that day. It wasn't something that waited for a long time, God has been calling people to himself out of both Gentiles and Jews for the entire Christian era. It's not a, like, it's two separate times or ages, and like, I could get into that. But, to conclude, I just want to read a couple of those scriptures on the permanency, the, irre- the irrevocable nature of God's grace. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. It shall not return to me empty, it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That's talking about each person that God calls. It goes out and it accomplishes the purpose that he designed for it. John 6, 37 to 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And now, Paul's final doxology and benediction to end this gospel presentation. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things.
to him be glory forever. Amen.